From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. We'll shatter myths about Colorado's elections with the midterms almost upon us. Then, arranging travel to Colorado for an abortion from out of state can affect patients' health and their finances. They're afraid to get care in their home state, and when they arrive, they end up being much further along than they expect. And so it's more costly. It means more days away from their home. And sometimes it even means that they don't receive the abortion. We check in with a reproductive health care provider who explains how delays in care can increase the risk of complications. She has seen patients drive here for days on end or come by bus exhausted. And a film that's live action, animated, painted, and cut out of paper, Quantum Cowboys. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Nearly a million Coloradans have returned their ballots so far. The deadline is 7 p.m. Tuesday, Election Day. Then we wait for results. The whole process, while historically smooth in Colorado, is also fraught as misinformation abounds. Let's check back in with the head of the Colorado County Clerks Association, Matt Crane. He's a Republican who has fought the big lie here and across the country. Hi again, Matt. Good morning. Nice to be here. As a Coloradan, as a journalist, you know, I just so hope things go smoothly next week, that we don't see misinformation flourish or, frankly, violence take place. Matt, I know you can't definitively answer this, but is it going to be okay? <laughs> yeah, well, I think so. I think I think Colorado voters um, should go out and vote with confidence that they're going to have an accessible voting experience and that their vote will be uh, tabulated correctly. It'll be accessible and secure all the way through. What are you on alert for, though? Well, a lot, especially after the last couple of years. Um, and a lot of it, it continues to be built around the disinformation that has gone about since the 2020 presidential election. We want people to know that they can they can vote in person if they want to vote in person. They can vote their mail ballot. Um, results will come if people there's there's disinformation right now that has convinced people that they should go even later on election day to cast their ballot. It's perfectly their right to be able to do that either in person or at the Dropbox. Just realize. You could run into longer lines. And by waiting until the last minute like that, it will take longer to get results and to have some clarity, especially if we have some close races. So you have choices to make, but there are repercussions to those choices in terms of in terms of results and lines. It might not be immediately obvious to someone where they would vote in person. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, Coloradans get a a ballot in the mail. Uh, If they want to vote in person, where do they go? So they can go to any voter service and polling center in their county to be able to cast a ballot. It's not like the old days where you're assigned to a specific polling place, a church or school, something Mm -hmm. like that. You can go to anywhere in your county. So call your clerk and recorder, go to their website, go to the secretary of state's website. They have a a VSPC search tool there. Uh, President Biden addressed the nation this week in what The Washington Post said was an unprecedented plea to Americans to accept the basic tenets of democracy. I'd like to listen to a snippet. 
We know that more and more ballots are cast in early voting or by mail in America. And we know that many states don't start counting those ballots until after the polls close on November 8th. That means in some cases we won't know the winner of the election for a few days until a few days after the election. It takes time to count all legitimate ballots in a legal and orderly manner. It's always been important for citizens in democracy to be informed and engaged. Now it's important for citizens to be patient as well. I think you've hinted at this thus far, but does that patience message resonate with you? A hundred percent it does, because we value accuracy um, of the count versus speed. And we know after 2020, one of the areas of disinformation was because we didn't have exact results on election night that there was something fraudulent happening. Here in Colorado, especially in the larger counties, we've never been done counting ballots on election night. As a matter of fact, we have until eight days after the election to accept people um, who are, are curing signature issues on their mail ballot or are UOCAVA voters who are military and overseas voters have until eight days after the election. Um, we can receive their ballots so long as it's postmarked by election day. So we're never done on election night or the next day. Of and course, th- there are folks who are accustomed to hearing calls from the media on election night. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a sophisticated algorithm, for instance, that the AP uses to come up with some of those calls. I, you know, uh, to talk through the tension there. Well, it's one of those things. The The media, I think, especially in 2020, we saw some concerns in Arizona, even though that media turned out to be right. Like, how can they call it when it was so close? Mm-hmm. They ended up being right. There wasn't fraud in Arizona, like some people like to say. You know, there's election administrators. There is a little bit of um, uh, friction there because in some ways we'd rather, OK, hang on. Don't you know, let's give it a day or two before we start reporting this out. But we also know that's not fair to the public and to the candidates, certainly, and that people have a right to know the updates as they go. What we generally tell people is if it's a wide margin on election night, then you can pretty much take that to the bank that that person who's up is going to win. But if it's inside, you know, if it's anywhere five points or less, buckle up because there's a lot of ballots that have to be counted. There's still those opportunities for people to cure ballots, you'll have a ballots to come in. So again, please be patient. Nothing nefarious is happening. All of this is a very open and transparent process. The parties have watchers making sure everything's running properly. Just be patient and we'll get accurate results out to you. So this conservative group based in Colorado, FEC United, mailed flyers asking voters to wait indeed until Election Day to vote adding that voters should file their ballots in person. And uh, this card said that voters shouldn't use their mail-in ballots, but save them as evidence. I'm not (laughs) sure evidence is what, but um, what is your reaction to that sort of advice? You've hinted at this a bit, but I'd like you to address it more squarely. Sure. I'm I'm not surprised that FEC United would put out something like that. I mean, their leader has done more to spread disinformation in Colorado and across the country than few others. Look, one of the great things about our model here in Colorado is that voters have a choice, right? We give people lots of choices in how they want to access the ballot. They can vote their mail ballot, and if they do that, they can return it by mail or they can go to a drop box. They can go vote in person for up to 15 days before Election Day. If you want to go and vote on Election Day, that's absolutely your right to do that, and you should do that. Just realize that if you go on Election Day, there could be longer lines, 
And again... And if you're in line before 7, do you get to stay in line, correct? Very important point. That's right. Okay. If you're in line by 7, you can get to vote. The problem is encouraging people to wait till the last minute. Life often happens, right? So you get caught at work. Something comes up with kids. There's a traffic So scale. again, you know, what this group, you know, what the information that you put, push out only will end up hurting their a percentage of their own voters who for some reason can't get to the polls or can't cast a ballot. Also... You can't be both the person saying vote on election day, vote maybe late on election day, and why don't we get results immediately? Right. That's right. There's an inherent tension you there just or can't, contradiction. That's right. But that's, you know, that's what this group and their leader, they, they keep pushing those kinds of things. And it's, you know, to me, it's disgusting. Do you trust drop boxes? Matt yes. Green? It's the... Our 24-hour drop boxes are the safest and most secure way to get your ballot back to the county um, for, for processing and tabulation. They're under camera coverage. Bipartisan teams pick up ballots every single day. It is the safest, most secure way to get your ballot back to us. They are not easily picked up, the, uh, no. the boxes themselves. That's right. Not, uh-huh. they, are, they are extremely heavy, bolted into the ground. Um, we've done fire tests on them. We've done all kinds of different tests. They, again, I can't stress this enough. They're the safest, most secure way to get your mail ballot back to the county. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're checking back in ahead of the midterms Tuesday with Matt Crane, who's head of the Colorado County Clerks Association. In the Phoenix area, organized groups wearing ballistic vests, sometimes carrying guns, are watching polling places. Uh, There have been lawsuits and court actions uh, with the Justice Department expressing concern in what is an argument between First Amendment rights and voter intimidation. Uh, Is that sort of thing happening in Colorado? Is that something you're braced for? It is something we're braced for. We haven't seen it happening in the way that it's happening down in Maricopa and other parts of Arizona yet. But it is something that um, we are prepared for, we have been bracing for. Um, and we again, it's fed by the disinformation coming out of 2020. I'll just say that as of this last state legislative session, it's illegal to openly carry firearms at a voting location in Colorado. Do I have that right? Uh, at a voting location, including drop boxes. Including drop boxes. That's correct. Okay. Uh, many 2020 election deniers are running for office across the country. Uh, The Brookings Institution counts five such candidates in Colorado. What are your concerns, if any, um, about their impact on future elections should they win? I'll note that some of the candidates, not in Colorado, mind you, uh, are for secretary of state in other states. My concern is driving policy based on a lie, based on disinformation, which will lead to less accessible and less secure elections. You know, the the model that these people are pushing are taking voting back to just one day, going to very uh, limited absentee balloting, hand counting ballots in precinct polling places. When you go to election on just one day, you're suppressing, you know, it will have um, the outcome of suppressing the vote. Hand counting ballots in precinct polling places it will be less accurate than what, how we count now and less secure because it's impossible to recreate the security protocols in 200 polling places around Arapahoe County um, than what you have in the central count facility there. I hear you saying these policies meant to secure the vote actually wind up getting in the way of the vote. A hundred percent. And that's um, but, you know, when you get down to it again, a lot of these lies, I, 
are designed for political and financial gain, right? So they're, they're grifting for either one of those things. And what they're telling you by the people who are driving this. Now, there are people of goodwill who hear this and like, oh, it makes sense. But the people who are driving this feel like this is the only way that they can win elections by suppressing voter turnout and by less accurate and less secure elections, which is very scary. A listener question now from a man in Denver who reached out to us. He wonders if someone sends their ballot in and then dies Mm -hmm. before Election Day, or I suppose on Election Day, is the ballot counted? It is. It is. Um, So they sign their ballot or they go vote in person, however that works. They've legally cast it. And then if, you know, unfortunately, if they pass, their ballot will still count. Thanks for that. You bet. Appreciate it. Uh, I I am thinking of our election night coverage will be live on Tuesday evening uh, in a provocative piece called Help Democracy Cancel Election Night. Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institution argues that states should stop reporting incomplete vote totals on election night. What do you think? I mean, this reflects a bit of the discussion we've had earlier. Mm -hmm. Should we cancel election night? I don't think so. I don't think, you know, I don't think it's fair to the public, um, you know, that if we have that information. So to be able to put it out, I think what we need is more responsible um, reporting or informed reporting. And we need more responsible leadership. You know, I, I think you and I have talked about this before. We're here in large part because of failure of leadership for people that tell the truth and, and, and say what they know to be true in terms of the election wasn't stolen. So we need to do a better job and we need to do a better job as election officials as well, pushing out election night. Those results are unofficial. They are not official until we certify two to three weeks later. And so they, there could be shifts. There could be changes in how the vote totals happen. And I think as a journalist, my responsibility, our responsibility as a newsroom is that there's nothing wrong or off or nefarious if we don't have immediate results, you know, and I suppose I'll keep uh, beating that drum. That's exactly right. The process is working as it should. Speaking of the process, so people have turned in their ballots. Mm -hmm. Have those ballots been counted in any way yet? Yes. So here in Colorado, one of the things, and I think what we heard from President Biden there, there are some states who have, um, you know, really foolish laws in terms of when they can start processing and counting ballots. They can't start until Election Day. Here in Colorado, we can start 15 days before. So all of the work of verifying eligibility through signature verification, opening the mail ballot envelopes and sending them through the tabulators is happening now. Now, we don't know. We don't look to see what those results are until seven o'clock on election night when we you know, hit the button and we get a results report. But all of that other work is being done. That footwork has already occurred. That's correct. Okay. Uh, very briefly, late last month, the Justice Department announced a nationwide election day program. According to a statement, it will be responsible for overseeing the handling of election day complaints, of voting rights concerns, threats of violence to election officials or staff, for instance, and election fraud. Are you encouraged by that Justice Department move on election day? I think we've gotten much better in terms of working with our state and federal partners to protect and secure our elections. I think just an example, there was an issue in Adams County yesterday uh, with uh, questionable substance uh, on a ballot that came back. The clerk up there called the the FBI right away. There's immediate response. It's under investigation. So I think what we've been working on, not just since 2020, but really over the last 10 years or so, is a better, stronger partnership between our federal and state law enforcement and election offices to protect what we do. Matt, thank you for being with us. And I know you'll join the program after the election. Yes, looking forward to it. Matt Crane, executive director of the Colorado 
County Clerks Association. And indeed, he'll be back after Election Day. And we'll be right back with what patients endure when they seek an abortion out of state. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Here are candidates for the top offices in Colorado this election season on the issues in their own words. The CPR News podcast, Who's Gonna Govern, is everywhere you listen to podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade this summer, ending the constitutional right to an abortion in the U.S., clinics in Colorado have seen a surge of -of out-of-state patients. So far this year, a thousand more out-of-state patients have traveled to Colorado for an abortion over last year. CPR's Claire Cleveland begins our coverage. At the Comprehensive Women's Health Center in Denver, Dr. Nancy Fung and other staff gather every day around 8 a.m. to discuss the day ahead, what patients they plan to see, and what procedures await them. But in the last year, especially since Texas enacted its abortion ban known as SB8, Fung says those conversations have sounded different. We've been talking about where the patient is coming from and then other pieces of information that we used to not really focus too much on are how long are they staying in town, when their flight is, or whether they're driving home. And the numbers reflect the change. Already this year, more than 2,400 patients have crossed into Colorado for an abortion. The year-over-year increase in out-of-state patients is suddenly higher than it's ever been. And according to Dr. Christina Tochi with Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, the increase is being felt at all levels of clinical care. It means there are, there are very busy days in our health centers. Tochi says the Planned Parenthood clinics that span Colorado, New Mexico, and Nevada, states where abortion is legal and accessible, have seen a jump of nearly 20% in abortions this year compared to last year. And the stream of out-of-state patients is only increasing. Just ask Sharon, the health center manager of the Planned Parenthood in Cortez, a town of fewer than 9,000 people in the southwest corner of Colorado. People are calling from all over the United States. I personally have scheduled patients from Louisiana, South Carolina, many from Texas, and not just northern Texas, but like Corpus Christi, Texas. And it's like a thousand miles for them to travel. CPR is using Sharon's first name to protect her identity. When she's not managing the clinic, she works the phones to help Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains make appointments. But increase in demand is creating problems for patients seeking care. Appointments are being pushed out further and further because we're just, we're at capacity. When appointments are delayed, pregnancies progress. That means that patients might require more invasive abortion procedures. A second trimester abortion is a two-day procedure rather than the one-day first trimester procedure. Fung says two days means more time away from patients' homes, families, and work. You know, I think some patients are frustrated at having to wait or realizing that if they're traveling from out of state, they may have to be seen for two or three days because it it does take so much resource to do that. She says the patients she's seen from out of state are not only frustrated by the barriers, many of them are also fearful. One patient told Fung that she felt like she was doing something wrong because her home state has banned abortions. You know, a lot of patients are like, I'm so glad that I could come to Colorado. Other patients are very, you know, upset, disturbed, 
infuriated by the state of reproductive health in the country. And Fong says it goes beyond feelings. She worries about patients who won't be able to travel to Colorado for care. There are going to be people who die because they're not able to access this care. All of this means that Colorado providers are not only busier and facing more logistical complications, they're also worried about being able to meet the continuously increasing demand from out-of-state patients. Sharon in Cortez says it feels overwhelming. It's heartbreaking for me that patients have such barriers to access basic health care. And I worry about people. I worry about my own daughters. So it's very, very troubling to me. And I, I can't comprehend being in that situation. The state health department tracks all abortions in Colorado, but the data for 2022 won't be finalized until early next year. I'm Claire Cleveland, CPR News. And Dr. Nancy Fong, who we just heard in Claire's story, joins me. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Something that stood out to me in Claire's story is that the logistics of -of out-of-state travel and scheduling with providers who are overwhelmed means that abortions may happen later. Uh, Can you expound on what that means for patients? Yes, I I think it has a lot of implications. Not only do patients have to travel out of their home state, but they have to coordinate care for their children, for their families, for whoever they're taking care of. And there's so much unpredictability when it comes to leaving their home to go to a medical appointment. So there's a lot of added stress. And that has physical effects. But what does it also mean that an abortion might be delayed as someone gets their ducks in a row? Right. Um, So as we know, abortion is a really safe medical procedure, but there are increased risks as we go later into gestational ages. For example, the risk of having heavy bleeding or a hemorrhage can increase. What that means for patients who may have to wait a month maybe even two months before they get their abortion, is that they may have increased risk to their health. Traveling for an abortion, as you've hinted, requires time off, a means of getting here. I gather that's an obstacle for some patients and that disparities are emerging. Are you seeing evidence of that? Yeah, we we have patients that I think feel fortunate enough to be able to get on a plane and fly directly into Denver International. But I've also had patients who have driven three days straight. You know, their partners or their parents or their families are taking naps in our our clinic rooms because they're so exhausted from the travel. I even had a patient who came with her mother and they took the Greyhound all the way from Texas. I suppose it's hard to know the stories of the people who can't make it to you. Yeah, and I I worry about those that we aren't seeing. You know, I think the people we are seeing in our clinics express their gratitude, but I imagine there are dozens, if not more, that aren't making it to our clinic doors. Are you starting to see provider burnout, given the demand? You know, I think burnout is a difficult thing to measure All the providers that I know that do abortion care feel really motivated and dedicated to the work, but I personally feel that all the additional stress and logistics and just patient stories that we're seeing are really taking a toll on both patients and providers. 
Is there an example for you of that, something that has weighed on your psyche? I feel the most for patients who have not received care anywhere in their home state. They're not sure how far along they are in their pregnancy, and they're afraid to get care in their home state. And when they arrive, they end up being much further along than they expect. And so what that means is it's more costly. It means more days away from their home. And sometimes it even means that they don't receive the abortion. Oh, really? Why? I think there are many factors. One of them could be that they just can't take any more time off away from either work or from their families. Another is cost. You know, we have wonderful abortion funds that have been helping so many of our patients, but these procedures can be costly, upwards of $10,000, depending on how far along. So the further you go down the timeline, not only increased health risks, but also increased cost. Mm -hmm. So there are people who come as far as Colorado and then realize they don't have the time or money to dedicate to this. Exactly. What motivates you to do this work? I, from a really young age, I have felt really motivated and dedicated to take care of patients that may not always receive the care that they deserve. And so that started with women's health and then transformed into OBGYN. And as I was going through medical school and residency, just found that reproductive health was this marginalized subset of healthcare, even though, you know, it's the second most common procedure next to C-sections. What is? Abortion care. Abortion care specifically. Mm -hmm. All right. Just to put a finer point on it. You use the word care, and I've heard many of the folks who are pro-abortion access say that abortion is health care. Mm -hmm. Will you expound on what that means to you? Yes. Um, you know, I think it's a fundamental right that people have access to reproductive health care, meaning abortion care. You know, the concept of when to have a child, if you want to have a child, is inherent to our society. I also think that there are a lot of aspects about abortion care, pregnancy care that if you aren't in that space, if you aren't a parent, you aren't a mother, you aren't a healthcare provider, many people don't understand the complexities that go along with it. Give me an example of something you think is missed either in the debate, the discussion, you know? You know, I don't know if it's missing in the national conversation, but I think something that people really need to focus on is becoming a parent is a life-changing event. And it can also be life-threatening for certain people. So, for example, I had a recent patient come from out of state, and she had heart failure after her last delivery of her child. And she was told by her doctors that if she became pregnant again, she would die because her heart would not be able to handle the pregnancy. And so when she came to me, she said, I want to have another child. That's my goal. But I can't right now because I'm not healthy enough to carry it. And I need to be here for my children. This was someone who was seeking abortion care? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does it shift the emphasis uh, in some way since the end of, of Roe, the Dobbs decision, to the family planning aspect of things? 
Is there a greater emphasis then? You mean in, in contraception mm-hmm. care or prevention of pregnancy? That's right, yeah. What, what shift do you notice in that regard? I see that there has been increased demand for contraception, whether that mean permanent contraception through tubal ligations, um, through access to IUDs, and also just, you know, birth control pills. But I think at the end of the day, that's not a solution. You know, we should still be offering every option available because there are situations where contraception or prevention of pregnancy, it doesn't matter if that's accessible because abortion still needs to be available. Any sense that there is more attention on vasectomies? Yeah, that's a great question. I certainly think that I'm seeing, you know, my colleagues seeing more males that are interested in vasectomy. Myself, I don't perform them, nor, yeah. do, nor do I see patients. This is more but, a sense of the field. Yeah, yeah, but I do have patients coming to me and saying, my partner now wants to get a vasectomy. And I said, that's, that's great. In anticipation of the Supreme Court ruling, Colorado passed the Reproductive Health Equity Act, which protects Coloradans' access to an abortion. You testified at the Colorado legislature in support of the act. And I understand that that was a very mixed experience for you. How how so? I think it's wonderful that we have protection for abortion access in Colorado. I think that is um, the right step. And, and the next step would be federal protection. But it saddens me that we're at the point where we need to protect that right. Do you worry for your safety? I think that on a day-to-day level, no. Um, You know, abortion providers have been doing this for a very long time. And I'm a young provider. um, And so I grew up hearing the stories of George Tiller and attacks against Planned Parenthood. And so our clinics and our providers, we do everything we can to protect ourselves and our families. I worry more about my patients and the guilt that they feel that some of their families don't support them. And now they have to go through even more obstacles to get health care they deserve. What, what do you say when you hear that from a patient? Yeah. It's, a, you know, I think that everything surrounding pregnancy and abortion is complex and emotional. I try and support them and meet them where they are. You know, a common phrase that I use is, I'm here to support whatever decision you make, no matter what that is. And so I try and just be there with them. Thank you for being with us. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Dr. Nancy Fong is a board-certified OBGYN and complex family planning physician at the Comprehensive Women's Health Center in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner, and Colorado Matters continues in just a bit from CPR News and KRCC. Colorado Democrats control both chambers of the state legislature, but Republicans see an opportunity this year, from the governor's office to the halls of Congress. The parties are contesting for Colorado's future, and we're covering it every step of the way. Come to CPR News every day for more on Colorado's election, also at CPR.org.
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Voters in Colorado Springs will decide whether to allow the sale of recreational marijuana within city limits. CPR's Southern Colorado reporter Dan Boyce has this story. While recreational marijuana sales are not allowed in Colorado Springs, there are still lots of dispensaries. My first time shopping in a dispensary, I kind of felt like a... 114 dispensaries, actually. I don't want to say a kid in a candy shop, but, you know, a kid in a candy shop for adults, kind of, you know. Right now, all 114 can only sell to medical marijuana patients. Janelle Bowman manages four Native Roots dispensaries in Colorado Springs. I have probably at least 20 different customers coming in a day looking for rec, and unfortunately we have to send them to Manitou. Every day? Every day, yeah. In Manitou, she's talking about the mountain town right next door. Manitou Springs houses two of the most valuable and expensive recreational dispensaries in the state because they're the only two in all of El Paso County Population 700,000. Um, so Manitou Springs is getting the benefit of the tax dollars. And so two citizen-led initiatives are now appearing on the Colorado Springs ballot. One, to allow those existing medical marijuana dispensaries to apply to sell recreational cannabis. And another initiative which taxes those sales. The opponents to recreational marijuana in Colorado Springs include most of the city's top elected leaders and organizations with a lot of local sway like the Chamber of Commerce. Colorado Springs hasn't lost any business over the last 10 years by not legalizing recreational marijuana. That's Colorado Springs Mayor John Southers. But we have garnered a lot of attention as a very family-friendly place, military-friendly place, business-friendly place. Southers says he believes the recreational marijuana industry has led to higher crime, more substance abuse, and more homelessness in cities where it's legal, like Denver. I and many of my fellow council members have deep concerns about the effects... And that's a sentiment recently echoed by the Colorado Springs City Council, which recently voted 6-3 to to issue a resolution opposing passage of the two ballot measures. Mayor Southers argues whatever taxes are brought in... Uh, It is simply not worth it. We're doing fantastic from an economic standpoint in Colorado Springs. And yeah, we get more money, but the cost that's passed on uh, to the healthcare system, to our schools, to our correctional facilities, in my opinion, far exceeds any economic benefits from it. Supporters of the measures say the second measure, which would collect and direct taxes from the recreational sales if they're legalized directly addresses a lot of the concerns opponents have about added costs to society. The tax portion of it is a big part of it because it's going to help the veterans with the PTSD treatment, the mental health, and the public safety. The tax money would be used solely for those things, in fact. Mental health services, public safety measures, and care for veterans. It's potentially millions of dollars supporters say that do not exist now. In the back office of Bowman's Native Roots Dispensary on Austin Bluffs Parkway, she has a box of yard signs which say, end the prohibition. So I'll have customers come in like, hey, I really like that sign. Do you have any extra ones? I want one in my front yard. She'll give them to anyone who asks. People are excited. Um, It's about time. She says since people are already using recreational marijuana in Colorado Springs purchased from elsewhere, she and other dispensary managers should be able to sell to them closer to home. Colorado Springs voters will clearly decide whether or not they agree with her. Dan Boyce, CPR News.
If any part of you feels overwhelmed by the many measures on your ballot, head over to CPR.org or Denverite.com for our comprehensive and clear voter guides. Okay, still to come, quantum cowboys. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There is a mountain in the distant west that, sun-defying, in its deep ravines displays a cross of snow upon its side. Those lines come from a sonnet by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, a tribute to his late wife, partly inspired by a Colorado 14er, Mount of the Holy Cross, near Minturn. A favorite peak of painters, photographers, and inspiration seekers, Mount of the Holy Cross is named for a cross-shaped snowfield on its northeast face. But it is not as sun-defying as Longfellow implied. A Colorado summer eventually does melt the snow down a steep, narrow rut into a sapphire-colored lake. It's called the Bowl of Tears, another poetically inspired feature of the landscape, as hiking straight up Mount of the Holy Cross can be arduous. Before the snow melts, bring a helmet, ice axe, crampons, and plenty of rope. After the snow melts, climbing is not recommended. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With support from Sheets and Giggles. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. An aspiring quantum physicist turned to filmmaking and made a Western. Quantum Cowboys takes place in a dozen different universes, and it employs live-action, hand-drawn animation, paper cutouts, even oil paintings. It feels like a surrealist collage has come to life. You know, time ain't a one-way street. We go back and forth. Well, you know, memories are just a side effect of consciousness. Time is just an assumption made out of those memories. So, memories change all the time, unless... Unless what? Unless you record it. Then it becomes a fixed point. The filmmaker behind Quantum Cowboys is University of Colorado professor Jeff Marslett. His movie screens at the Denver Film Festival this weekend. It's got some big names, by the way, David Arquette, Nico Case, and it has been racking up awards at previous festivals. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Thanks for having me this morning. I understand that you're not a fan of traditional Westerns, so I, why make a Western? I mean, I do like traditional Westerns. I, I'll be the first to admit I don't like John Wayne Westerns, okay. but I do love uh, Clint Eastwood Westerns. So I don't hate them, uh, but I did... Uh, Part of my film is about the way art creates our memories. You know, that's a, one of the ideas behind making this movie and that when we create art to express what our own experiences is, those various arts that we create compete until one gets considered reality and history. And I huh. think there is no uh, – there's no genre that expresses that greater than the Western. I mean I was just – literally a week ago in Tavernus, Spain, where they filmed all those spaghetti westerns. And most people's view of a western is a guy from California in southern Spain directed by Italians making up a story. But that's what we think Texas is now. So. <laughs> uh, I want to hone in on what you said. Art creates memory. Is that what you said? Yeah. I will. No, sorry. Um, that. Uh, well, yes. Art. We use art... Yeah, let me start it from the beginning there. I think that each of our individual experiences in life, no one else can really know someone else's experience. Uh -huh. We're all individuals. And what we do, whether it's the art of conversation, the art of painting, the art of filmmaking, music, but we as people try to use art to express our own experience to other 
human beings. And then this funny thing happens that as we all create art, that art naturally competes for what becomes the reality of the past, what becomes history. And eventually, the loudest art, the most indelible art, uh, we settle upon that. And when we think about uh, the Vietnam War, we see those photographs of that, you know, the poor man being executed. And when we think about the 80s, you hear a Cindy Lauper song and have uh, nostalgia. But none of it is the real experience of the past. Mm. It's versions of art that we use to create human history. Does that put pressure on you as a filmmaker? Because now I'm thinking, well, Jeff must want his film to emerge, you know, as something indelible. I mean, I do. It puts a lot of pressure on you. It, it does and it doesn't. I mean, the other half of making a film like this, which I think just is a very different film than other films really anybody's seen. But uh, some of it was to remind people that we're creating history in that way. So uh, we shouldn't be so certain about what we've chosen to be indelible. Um, I like to describe this film and Lily Gladstone, who is in the film, usually does a better job of me talking about this side of it. But um, this film's also designed to decolonize knowledge, to remind people that sometimes one idea and a completely conflicting opposite idea can both be true at the same time. And perspective and observation really does matter in our universe from a physics standpoint, but also from a memory and a history standpoint. So I do want it to be indelible, but I'm also happy if people are like, well, this one's totally wrong as well. <laughs> Lily is one of two indigenous actors. In three, three. Well, three of our main actors, because uh, oh, you know, right. Kiowa, Lily, and Gary. Who that quote, the the great clip you played made me very happy because that's Gary Farmer, who obviously has been at this for a long time. So yeah, give us the nutshell plot of Quantum Cowboys, will you? Yeah, I mean, at its most basic level, it is um, a couple of hapless. I mean, I'll call them cowboys, though they don't really do that much rounding up of cattle. Uh-huh. They're not gunfighters, <laughs> but a, a couple of a couple of regular people in the West who. Um, are down on their luck and basically don't have anything better to do than prove each other wrong as to whether this musician is alive or dead. Um, and they go looking for him. Um, having said that, if you go in expecting that movie, you're going to get something totally different as well. I mean, that's that's the basic plot. But around that plot, we're talking about quantum physics and we're talking about art and music. And, you know, it's really my love letter to all those things. I mean, there is uh, the invoking of Schrodinger's cat, for instance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and even, you know, the musician himself, whether or not Blackie's alive, is is obviously a parallel to whether or not the cat's alive in uh-huh. Schrodinger's experiment. You make reference to the Mobius strip yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Is it true the cat's based on your cat? The cat is based on my cat and played by my cat, okay. who, who very sadly passed away in March. Suddenly, um, she was I'm sorry. she was between eighteen and twenty years old. She was a former feral, but yeah, I'm I'm very much a cat person, and you know, cats are part of stories like Alice in Wonderland. Cats are part of Schrodinger's you know experiment, but uh, so I felt it was also important for me to make the cat the confidant of memory in this film. I also think that cats. Um, they they seem to be creatures that slip in and out of this current moment. Absolutely. Does that make sense? They seem like time travelers to me somehow. You are the animator, director, writer, producer, and an actor in this movie. Did I miss anything? Um, That's probably about right. (laughs) (laughs) Was was it uh, largely, at a certain point, did this become a very uh, lonely experience? I mean, I know the making of the film 
might be a team effort, but at some point, does it become kind of isolating? I mean, I wouldn't say so much isolating, certainly no more than anyone else going through the the pandemic. And, you know, actually that same cat, Fat Face, she was uh, on my lap helping me animate this thing. I say helping. She used her little peats to touch stuff. But she was she was with me through the whole course of that, which was nice. Um, but, uh, you know, I think this film allowed me to collaborate with uh, so many of my cinematic heroes. You know, this is Anna Karina's final film. Uh, you know, Gary Farmer, Alex Cox, Anna are some of the big reasons why I made films in the first place and inspired me when I was younger. Uh, I wrote this role for Lily and she took it. Old friends like Frank Mosley, new friends like David Arquette and Kiowa, um, and bringing in musician friends like Hal Gelb and John Doe and Nico Case. So it, in some ways, I would say this wasn't lonely because mm-hmm. I was able to collaborate with so many people that I truly loved. Um, having said that, I also stayed up till 4.30 in the morning for two and a half years. And this is not exaggerating. You know, you don't finish an animated feature on our budget unless somebody is staying up till 4.30, going to bed for three hours, and then doing their day job. And that somebody was, was of course, you. me. <laughs> You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with the maker of the film Quantum Cowboys, which is part of the Denver Film Festival now underway. Uh, the filmmaker is University of Colorado film professor Jeff Marslett. Okay, I think 10 different kinds of animation... 12 maybe? Actually, yeah. A, yeah, a dozen different styles. Why don't you pick one and tell us about it? All right. One that's particularly interesting, I think, um, is we did some work where we filmed the actors um, uh, in the barn. We converted a barn in Boulder uh, to film most of our actors doing their thing. And then we cut the actors out in paper, frame by frame, and then built uh, essentially a dollhouse bar for little seven-inch paper cutouts of the actors and then re-photographed the whole scene. And one scene in particular we use this for has the musician John Doe in it playing multiple characters in the same scene that we were able to create that way. And so it has some of the paper and some of the film integrated. Well, yeah, so it's actually, we filmed them and they did every single frame of motion themselves, but they're paper cutouts. And then the world around them is a little dollhouse full of miniature items. And then we brought the camera in there and reshot it like you would stop motion. And the barn served as both backdrop, but also just studio? Yeah, exactly. It didn't didn't really serve as any backdrop other than a green screen we had in there. There weren't really props or backgrounds, but it was a place to shoot, which we shot in 2019 in October. And it was supposed to be like 60 degrees like Colorado is, but instead... I don't think it broke freezing even a single day of the shoot. So, Oh, so you're mostly shooting this in a cold barn in very, Boulder. Very cold barn Who's in Boulder. Who's barn? Uh, Devin, who is actually Devin. one of the actors, a um, okay. local actor here. Uh, she plays uh, one of the three camera crew uh, members, but uh, got connected to her, and she generously let us shoot and build a big 60-foot-wide green screen in her barn. In her barn slash Soundstage. Exactly. And you mention a film crew. So there's kind of a meta film crew in the film. There is. There is. Um, you know, that that's a lot of the idea that that is, I mean, for anyone out there who's wanting to think about the physics of this, two, two researchers, two physicists just won the Nobel Prize for talking about how local reality, local, local reality is not a thing, that observation does, in fact, on a subatomic level affect what's really going on. And so a big part of this film was that 
reality only exists with an observer. And mm. this idea that we say something is now real is once, as Gary said in that clip, it's a fixed point. And that camera crew is very much the people who fix the point that will be reality. In order <laughs> to come up with some of this stuff, do you have to get into an altered state? I mean, I think... I mean, you certainly can. Uh, I feel like shout out to Missoula, Montana. I think there was a good crowd of people in an altered state who laughed a lot at my film. Uh, <laughs> oh, in that's a great interesting. Way. You're uh, answering this for the audience, and I guess I'm asking it of you as a filmmaker. <laughs> well, as a filmmaker, I think that, and that's well, that was the second part of the answer okay. is that um, for me, what I loved about physics is physics is a way, quantum physics in particular, is a way to understand reality that our senses can't understand. That we're limited as a people. We have sight and sound, and we think we understand the universe. Mathematically speaking, we don't. What we observe is, is wrong, and you can prove things that we think are reality because that's what our eyes and ears and senses tell us, but that mathematically isn't how reality works. And quantum physics lets you see that, and to me, that's like a strange drug because as soon as you see a universe beyond what you can understand, it's exciting and elating and euphoric, but at the same time, it takes everything you thought you knew and yanks that carpet out of under you, which is... Very much like the feeling of having too many drinks or other, <laughs> other ways of, of becoming inebriated. And you're like, I know all these things I didn't realize I knew. But then also everything you thought you knew is confusing and you're a little dizzy. And, Existence yeah. is altering. It is. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, the movie is set in the 1800s, but in one scene you have an airplane flying over one of your hapless wanderers. Uh, in another, he stumbles on a phone booth in the middle of nowhere. A phone booth might seem like ancient history to us now, but of course not existent then. Are you just messing with us? No. I mean, I think part of what I'd, I also like to say in this is that um, we think of time as being this crazy thing that you, once you get away from it, you're now so – you can never go back to it. And I don't think time actually works that way. I would argue that time isn't linear, and I hope by the end of the film people feel that. And one of the things I'm saying with the anachronisms and the little breaks in the fabric where you see the future of the past, the yeah. Vietnam soldiers, the airplane, is that in reality, the the actual effect of what it feels like to be somewhere, there's as much difference in what it feels like to be in Boulder, Colorado, or Rocklaw, which I'm pronouncing wrong, Poland, where I'll be in a week, as there is in being in Boulder in 1873 or 1973, that I think we should consider time much more like just moving around in a location. Do you hope that Quantum Cowboys becomes a cult movie? That would be fabulous. You know, I have my own could could go on for, you know, weeks about how uh, the the sort of extinction of physical media makes cult movies much harder. Streaming services mm. don't favor the... Uh, the allowance of films to sit on the shelf until they find their audience and people who want something different to coalesce as a community around a film, the way most cult films do. Oh, that's fascinating. But if there is a way in this world for that to still happen, that is absolutely where I'd love to see this film. It's uh, funny because you think of digital space as somewhat limitless, right, versus a blockbuster where you had to have physical copies on the shelf. And, and yet today's environment doesn't support that, you're saying. Not at all. So many films disappear because if a major streamer puts it on, they choose what few hundred films to make available. And if they don't make your film available, it essentially doesn't exist. You know, people don't have access to it. Where the old mom and pop video stores uh, would just like your film and keep it on that shelf for 30 years. Thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Thanks for having me on this morning. University of Colorado film professor Jeff Marslett has made the indie film Quantum Cowboys. It's showing as part of the Denver Film Festival. And thanks for joining us today. With thanks as well to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. 
Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Claire Cleveland and Nancy Lofholm. You're with CPR News and KRCC. Thanks for spending time with us.